Oh, would you please join me in standing as we read God's Word together and make your way toward the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter 8, is where we will be together uh, this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 6. As our studies through the book of Genesis continue this morning, what we're looking at together is verse 20 of chapter 8 through verse 17 of chapter 9. It's a text that, as you'll soon notice, is almost exclusively occupied with God speaking something to Noah, and therefore, by extension, to us. There was a Puritan named Edward Lee who once wrote a treatise on the promises of God, and he called God's promises the grounds of all our hope the fuel for all our faith, and the rules for all our prayer. And so I want you to pay attention, particularly you children, kids, as I read the text, see how many promises of God you can spot that he's getting ready to give us in our passage. Let me read the text for us, and then I'll pray for our time, and we will begin together. Uh, let's hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be caught off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, 
This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? And the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us bow together as we pray for God's blessing on our study. Father, we are grateful indeed that you are a God who speaks. As you speak to us by your word and spirit, and even in these last days, you have spoken to us by your Son, who is the exact imprint of your being, the radiance of your glory, he who sustains all things and upholds the universe by the word of his power. So speak to us this morning the word of your covenant, that we might be reminded again as your covenant people of your faithfulness to your promises, of your goodness to your creation, the mercy that you have over all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You don't have to be the most able athlete or avid fan of sports to know that to play in any sport is to constantly want a do-over. Just think about how this often works within given sports that are popular in our country. In football, there's the field goal kicker that wants a do-over of the kick. He just smashed off the uprights that would have been the game-winning field goal. In basketball, it's the player who wants those free throws back that he missed at the end of a game. It's in baseball, the batter who ground out to second into a double play when the bases were loaded at the end of the ninth inning to close out the series in which his team was in in the playoffs. In my own sport of soccer, it's the player who misses the penalty that would have been the game-tying kick. And some of you are hacks enough at golf to know that golf has even a word for this do-over. This second chance that a golfer longs for, a mulligan, actually came after the name of a somewhat professional golfer in the New York area in the 1920s named David Mulligan. And I tell you this because isn't it true how ne'er does a year go by, a month go by, a week go by? Isn't it true ne'er does a day go by when we don't want a second chance at something? We don't want a do-over. And what we come to this morning is, in a divine sense, the do-over in all of creation. As God has just, we studied last week, decreated the earth and the flood, here He is recreating it all over again in our passage today and making promises to Noah and, of course, to us in all of creation as well. And so if you weren't with us last week, we did just look at chapter 6 through chapter 8 and this famous story of dread and doom, God flooding all of the earth, extinguishing the life breath from every breathing creature on the planet except those animals that were in Noah's ark and Noah and his seven family members. And what we saw last week was central truths to the Christian faith, simple things like God's judgment will come suddenly upon sinful people like you and me. Therefore, the only way of escape for sinful people like you and me is God's way of escape, which, of course, for Noah was the ark, but ultimately, and in full fulfillment for all of us, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's the only shelter for any sinful soul. Jesus Christ, who is called in the New Testament the second Adam, but if you have eyes to see in our text this morning, and even it will work out this way in coming weeks in the remainder of chapter 9, it seems as though Noah is the second Adam. He gets almost the same commands that Adam got before the fall. 
Noah bursts onto the scene as the righteous man, the blameless man, the one who walked with God, the great grandson of a man so holy that he didn't even die. The Lord took him before his death, this man named Enoch. So what you want to see in this passage is this kind of fresh bursting of hope, of expectation, of joy and excitement. Maybe the serpent crusher promised to Eve and to Adam and all mankind there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Maybe that serpent crusher has finally come, and we know his name, Noah. But we do know the rest of the story. Of course, Noah wasn't that man. But you want to see something of that hope and expectation as God's recreating all things here as he's making a covenant with Noah. Now, we said last week in Genesis 6, verse 18, God makes a covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant, Noah, with you and with your family. It's the first time in all of Scripture that this word covenant shows up. And you want to have your ears pricked and your interest peaked whenever you see God mention making a covenant. Because something significant is going to happen. And so you might have noticed as I was reading the text, seven times God speaks of a covenant that he is establishing. And so that's the theme that we're wanting to pursue this morning, God's covenant promise with all the world. This is not just a covenant promise with Noah and his offspring, although it is with Noah and his offspring. It's a covenant promise with all the world. And so we've got three simple sections to walk through this morning. Uh, Three simple words to kind of guide our way along. First, we'll see blessings. Second, commands. Thirdly, promises. God is speaking We want to pay attention to his words, and first of all, we want to receive his blessings. Look again at how verse 20 begins. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. As best I can tell, about 370 days after he and his family and all the animals went into the ark, they now finally have disembarked the ark. And do you notice Noah's first response from God's deliverance? It's a sincere act of worship. That worshiping God in praise and gratitude, sacrificial offerings to Him, is the ordinary response of a redeemed heart to any of God's deliverances. And I do hope you know how often in an ordinary day, in an ordinary week, God delivers us. Maybe it's from temptation. Maybe it's from the evil one. Maybe it's from the sin lurking around the corners of our own hearts. And I wonder what your ordinary response is when God brings a deliverance of His mercy and grace into your life. Here it is, a deliverance that brings sacrifice. And even you want to notice the repetition of these words, every. It shows up twice, don't you notice, in verse 20? showing the all-encompassing nature of Noah's sacrifice. This wasn't just some small offering to God. This is some of every animal and every winged creature that was with him on the ark. We're talking probably thousands of animals he is sacrificing to the Lord in this moment. It also helps us make sense of something that tends to confuse people in the flood account. In Genesis 7, God commands Noah to take seven sevens of every kind of animal into the ark. And people often wonder, why does he need seven sevens? Well, clearly part of the reason why is these were going to be given in sacrifice and sincere worship unto the Lord. It's an all-encompassing nature to Noah's sacrifice. And we do know that, you know, this side of redemptive history, 
this side of the work of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect, pleasing, final sacrifice, we no longer need to offer blood sacrifices to the Lord. But even we read it, didn't we, earlier for Romans chapter 12, that our very life, our very bodies are to be offered as a living sacrifice. It's our holy and acceptable, pleasing worship and service to the Lord. So I wonder if there's any place this past week where you've offered sacrificial worship to the Lord. Any place this past week where you've strove with the Spirit, kept in step with God's helper to offer pleasing worship to the Lord, because you need to know it is possible for God's people to please the Lord. Look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, in Hebrew it's more literally, he smelled a smell. My kids, I assume sometimes you smell a smell. And I wonder when the last time you smelled a smell that was pleasant, that was pleasing. Maybe it was when you came home from school recently and someone had baked cookies or brownies you knew were going to be on the dessert menu because someone had just put them in the oven. Or even this week, I came home uh, from work one day and had noticed that my wife had burned a scented candle for some time because the whole house smelled like fall scents throughout the rooms. And in a similar way, God smells a smell that's pleasing to him. But what's interesting about the word pleasing, we've mentioned this before in previous weeks about Noah's name. Do you remember what his name sounds like in Hebrew? Rest. Okay? The, the word here for pleasing is actually more literally tranquil or rest. It's almost as though what God is saying, the Lord smelled a Noah smell. You know, it's possible that the Lord could smell a Redeemer smell in our offerings of worship unto Him, a pleasing sacrifice to Him that causes Him, you'll notice even the language of He, he speaks into His own heart, and as the text continues in verse 21 and 22, it's almost like we get to be a fly on the wall in this divine intertrinitarian dialogue as God is speaking to Himself. These blessings, and there are three of which you want to notice. First of all, this blessing that there won't be another corruption. Look at the middle of verse 21. The Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now students, you want to pay attention to the biblical and theological reason for no more corruption of the earth. Do you see that in verse 21? Because men and women, boys and girls, are sinful from birth, God says, I won't corrupt the earth again. And I hope you understand why that makes sense. If God had decreed and decided to judge every sinful generation with a flood, what is he going to have to do in every single generation? Judge it with a total flood, such as the sin of man from birth. But here is God blessing the creation, saying there won't be another corruption just like that. He also says there won't be another destruction just like that. Notice how verse 21 ends. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And so you're wanting to understand this, this mercy clearly being signaled right from the outset of God's thinking in his own mind, speaking in his own heart, this mercy and grace and kindness that he's going to show to all of creation who clearly don't deserve it. There is going to be no more corruption and no more destruction. And then verse 22 tells us no more interruption. 
you might be like me and you find October in North Texas to be one of the most enjoyable months of the whole year. You know, finally the the hot air that lingers until almost midnight is, you know, giving way to some sort of cool, crisp morning breath of freshness when you wake up and then there's this signal of holidays coming around the corner. And if you've ever gotten excited with just summer moving to fall, what you recognize is you ought to be spiritually excited about the certainty of summer moving to fall because of what God says in verse 22. The reason we can expect such certainty is because what he says, no interruption of the seasons. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. It's another way of speaking about this kind of all-encompassing promise that God keeps putting forth in this text. He uses what we call technically merisms, using these words to kind of talk about the whole thing. So you see, if you look through verse 22 again, he says, I'm not going to interrupt seasons, weather, agriculture, time. All of it's going to continue as it should. So certain is my blessing upon all of creation. So this is why we're to receive God's blessings. But as the text continues into verse 1 through 7 of chapter 9, uh, the call now is there to obey God's commands. And if you pay attention to news headlines, even local news headlines, you know that the political craziness of our American moment descended on Dallas earlier this week, specifically on Thursday as our president was holding a rally in downtown Dallas that was attended by many thousands, standing room only is what I was told, and one of his you know, most vocal opponents. And critics, nominee for the, or a candidate for the Democratic nominee, Beto O'Rourke, was supposed to be holding this counter-rally on the very premises, and there was this collision of the worldviews that are colliding in our country. And if you pay attention to such commentary when events like this happen, invariably you start getting to a point where pollsters and political pundits will wonder about Christian voters and who they're going to support. And they know that in their studies, in their research, that the right to life is a very important thing for Christian voters in America. And sometimes they'll speak about it in such a way it seems as though they wonder where we get this from. Like, why, why are you so interested in the right to life? And maybe someone has said that to you before, or maybe students, you have a professor that's wondering that same thing. And if such a thing happens, you just say, well, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. Because notice the blessings turn into commands now as God, first of all, commands his people to produce life. You see, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, if you are a savvy reader of Genesis, you know we've heard almost the exact same thing already in this book. Do you remember where it was? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, what we commonly call the cultural mandate, this kind of creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam was to fill the earth. And now Noah, as the recreation story continues, he's to refill the earth. as something like this second Adam, this second man from which humanity is going to descend. And what's going to sustain them in the midst of all of this creative growth? If you just look through verses 2 and 3, it seems like God is saying... Well, now what's going to sustain you is you're going to eat meat. Do you see that? He says in verse 3, he gives the granting and privilege to people to now eat from every moving thing that lives. It shall be food for you. And this is a truth that PETA doesn't like. 
But it's also a truth that is somewhat confusing when you think about it. I mean, we're over a thousand years past the fall. So does this mean that all humanity was essentially vegetarian before this moment in Genesis chapter 9? Plain reading of the text makes it seem like that. Uh, I think we want to steer away from that curiosity more into what God is speaking about is in the second Adam, Noah, there is a relationship with the animal kingdom because you might remember the first Adam, Genesis 1 and 2, there's a distinct relationship. You remember he has with the animal kingdom and what was it? Joy, harmony, resting beside each other as Adam is naming the animals. But here the tone is the exact opposite, isn't it? You see verse 2, fear and dread is now going to define man's relationship with animals as man is now given the privilege to kill animals in order to eat of them and sustain themselves for the very work. So you'll notice verse 4 and 5 as God continues. He says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So here when God's commanding Noah, it's not just a commandment to produce life. You see it, don't you, in 4 through 6, to protect life as well. Here's the original proof text for capital punishment in Scripture. If an animal kills a person, that animal's life must be taken. If a person kills another person, the murderer's life must be taken in judgment for that sin. And if you've wondered why God gives this to his people, well, just look at verse 6. The theological reason for this punishment is whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. I hope you see it. Animals are not created in the image of God. Man is created in the image of God. It's why, and I don't mean this in a silly sense, it's why you can have a clean conscience about going on a deer hunt. But if you take the life of another, you've destroyed the image of God, and He is not pleased with that kind of destruction. So students, you want to be quite careful here in a good way and studious on this point because we are increasingly living in a culture in our Western world that talks about humans as just another kind of animal. We're not really that different from the animal kingdom. You know, even this week I came across an article of a celebrity couple I'd never heard of before, but evidently they're a big deal. And they are <clears throat> soon to be divorced, and they were talking about this kind of amicable, amicable separation between the husband and the wife, and there was a debate and discussion over who was going to get, quote, the two children. But you only read two or three more sentences to realize the two children, quote, were what? Puppies. Don't we live in a world where so oftentimes many young families are so eager to have children that they speak of their cats and dogs as children? even not wanting to leave some sort of carbon footprint on the world lest they have too many children. When the command is produce life, do you see it reiterated in verse 7? Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Insofar as God allows, right, under His sovereign kindness and providence, this command continues in our age today. We're to receive God's blessings and obey God's commands and then most centrally in this passage is verse 8 through 17. We want to trust God's promises. 
some of you, many of you, have grown up in churches and fellowships that are very much within the Reformed theological tradition. And you know that part of our doctrinal heritage is something we often refer to as covenant theology. This is a central part of what we understand to be true about what God's doing across redemptive history from Genesis to uh, Revelation. I mean, I even go so far to say that God's relationship with all His creation is always covenantal. The divine's relationship with non-divine creation is always covenantal in form. And so here we're getting to what our heritage and tradition is often called the Noahic covenant, as he's going to create this covenant with Noah. But we see it doesn't just terminate with Noah. Because first of all, notice the recipients of the covenant in verse 9. God says to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. What do you notice? As it turns to verse 10, it's not just Noah's family that gets this covenant mercy, is it? Notice the repetition of every in verse 10. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is every beast of the earth to whom this covenant belongs. This is, kids, a worldwide covenant. This doesn't just belong to one group of people. This doesn't belong to just one family or just one individual. This belongs to all people, all creation that belongs to the Lord. So those are recipients, but notice the promise in verse 11, the promise of the covenant. God says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The tense of God's intention in verse 11 is important. Because it's speaking about, I'm establishing my covenant with you and with all creation. It's not talking about this kind of one-off creation of a covenant that's eventually going to kind of come to its full realization. It's going to come to its termination. He's talking about this covenant relationship that's going to extend far into the future. And just glance down at verse 16. You see what he calls it in verse 16. An everlasting covenant. From that point forward, God says, I will never again destroy all of the earth with a flood. And it's quite important, even for apologetic reasons, to notice this. Uh, liberal commentators will often say, well, the flood that we studied last week wasn't this worldwide flood. You know, it was this kind of localized flood in the ancient Near Eastern world of Noah's time. So, when God says he's never going to again flood the world where there have been tsunamis, there have been hurricanes, there have been floods that have destroyed particular groups of the world. So that's why you can't trust God's promise. He's actually done it again already. But we want to say, no, no, no. It was genuinely a worldwide flood. And here he is saying there will not be another worldwide flood by which he would close the waters upon every creature that has breath. But you'll notice the majority of what we hear from God's covenant language in this passage is about, thirdly, the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant. Signs often can identify things and people. You know, think about going to the Cotton Bowl or Cowboys Stadium and say two college teams from Texas are playing each other in some sort of football game and say you didn't really have an understanding about the colors that belong to such schools, but you would eventually see people doing things with their hands. That would identify them, right? This sign, someone doing this, you're like, ha, you belong to the Texas Longhorns or someone doing this like my family 
all Baylor Bears crying Sikkim Bears. Or, of course, there is the Texas Tech Red Raiders, you know, guns up. Or a little bit more unknown because of its fall from grace is this, which is the SMU Mustang sign, right? You can see something about a person and their identity through the sign. God always attaches a sign to His covenants. And what's unique about this covenant is it's a sign not principally for you and me. You notice, as the text goes on, it's a sign principally for God Himself. What does He say? Notice verse 12 through 15. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the sign of the covenant, the Noahic covenant, this covenant with creation, it is the rainbow. Now kids, think what you often maybe have come into your mind when you see a rainbow in the sky. I want you to understand it is indeed a sign of God's grace towards you, but it's not this kind of cute, cuddly sign of colors just written across the clouds. Because what you need to understand is that this bow is actually a weapon in the ancient Near Eastern world. Think about it as a bow and arrow. It's as though what God has done is He's thrown aside His weapon for battle. He's thrown aside His implements for destruction. He's saying, never again will I bring this weapon upon the earth. So is my covenant with all of creation. And have you ever noticed its position? You know, in ancient iconography, when kings and generals were depicted of going into battle, they'd be marching off with their bow in a vertical position because they needed to be ready to shoot their arrows at their enemies. And when they marched back home, victorious, after winning the battle, the bow was held in a horizontal position saying that peace had been achieved. And in a sense, what God is saying with His creation is there is peace. My bow is hung in the clouds. This is a sign of my covenant of grace and peace with all of creation. And surely it's a most terrible snare and subtle attack of Satan that he takes this covenant sign of grace and has turned it into a sign of sexual sin within our culture as most of our nation, Western world, sees the rainbow as the emblem of sin against God's law. But we see it as God remembering His covenant grace with His people, trusting in God's covenant promise for all the world. You get sent interesting things when you're a pastor? Yesterday, uh, one of our dear church members sent me a Peanuts comic strip in which Linus, if you know the characters that often were in Peanuts uh, comic strips, Linus is talking about the value of sound theology. And I thought to myself, ah, I remember another Peanuts comic strip where Linus is talking about the value of sound theology. And maybe you didn't know that Linus is such a sound pastor theologian. But one day in this comic strip, there's this picture of Linus and Lucy staring out these home windows, and there's a downpour of rain outside. And Lucy says, look at it rain. 
Uh, she asked Linus, what if it floods the whole world? And he says, it will never do that. Well, in the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that the world would never be flooded again and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy says, why, you, you've really taken a, a load off of my mind, smiling this kind of relief. And Linus says, that sound theology has a way of doing that, <laughs> relieving the mind. Sound theology does have a way of doing that, bearing burdens, taking loads. Sound covenant theology has a way of doing that, helping God's people in the midst of what often is a weak and weary life. So as we close, what I want to do is bring out two things that are true about our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God according to this covenant. Two things that I genuinely hope might help you be relieved of burdens that you might be bearing and carrying the first thing that this passage tells us, doesn't it, is that God is full of unconditional mercy. God is full of unconditional mercy. I don't see a condition in the covenant with Noah and creation. Do you? And the reason why that's significant, I would understand the rest of subsequent biblical covenants to have some sort of condition attached to them. Either a condition that comes before the covenant promise or a condition that comes after the covenant promise. But here is mercy that goes worldwide given without condition. Because certainly Noah didn't do anything to deserve this covenant being cut and established with his family. He's going to prove that by the end of the chapter that he didn't deserve it. Now, you and I haven't done anything to deserve this covenant mercy that still extends to us today because we still see rainbows hanging in the sky. All creation hasn't done anything to deserve this covenant mercy, but he still hasn't yet flooded the earth and extinguished all breath from the animal kingdom. God is full of unconditional mercy. What would it look like then as a covenant people of God called to imitate God if such mercy was part of our life together? Parents and grandparents showing wise biblical mercy to their children. Or as Jude urges the church, show mercy to the doubting. I wonder if there's someone this week that you can show mercy to in this way. God is full of unconditional mercy, isn't he? But you see the second thing, he's full of unchanging faithfulness. Unchanging faithfulness. He says to us from this passage, if you're like me and you get excited about the changing of the seasons from summer to fall, the certainty that we have that the hot air is going to become cool once again is because of his covenant promises remaining in place. He's faithful to his word. As surely as the sun is going to continue to rise in the east, as surely as it's going to continue to set in the west, so sure is God's promise being fulfilled in his covenant grace. Is there someone you might be able to encourage this week with God's promise, his unchanging faithfulness? Someone whom spiritually might help raise their soul and raise their arms because they're wondering if God has forgotten about them, wondering if God actually will make good on a promise he has made to them. How can you encourage someone this week with the promise of God? You know, I've often read from somewhat more academic and quite technical scholars on this passage, some sense of a wondering. And I think it's a genuine wonder. Well, what about the arrow, right? He, he hung his war bow in 
the sky, but what about the arrow of judgment? Where did that thing go? Well, if we understand it rightly, he took it into his own heart, didn't he? He was going to actually strike that arrow into the soul of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the beloved Son of God, in whom he is well pleased. Jesus Christ, the pleasing sacrifice, who takes this arrow of judgment that all of us deserve and willingly lays down his life and satisfies God's wrath against our sin. So if you're in here today, what you need to understand is what the Bible tells us is what we have seen already in verse 21. The intention of every person's heart is evil. And evil deserves God's punishment. It means to stand apart from Jesus Christ is to walk through life as though you have a spiritual bullseye on your heart and one day His arrow of judgment will strike that bullseye. Unless you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ who took such an arrow into His own very soul as He hung on the cross at Calvary. And what's fascinating, if you make your way all the way, all the way to the end of the book of the Bible, you start in Genesis, even as one little child told me before the service begins, uh, Pastor Stone, I've made it all the way to Revelation. And you get to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which is one of the most moving scenes of glorified worship that you're going to find in all of the Bible. John sees this heavenly throne room and he tries to describe it. And you remember what he describes as surrounding the throne in heaven? A rainbow. So true and central is essential, this faithfulness of God. So my question to you as we finish, are you ready to lay your weapons down before the king around whom shines this rainbow, the faithful one, the holy one, who took the arrow of judgment into his own heart that you might know grace in his covenant? For Jesus Christ himself is the very covenant for God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy and grace that even though we deserve it, that we should be blotted out, that we should be wiped out. You are patient with us. You enable us time to come to your Son. So we pray that you would, through the work of the Spirit, that you would bring genuine faith into all of our hearts this day as we want to be renewed in the strength of your covenant promises. We pray for those that are apart from Christ, that haven't ever come to the Savior, that this day they might know his faithfulness and his love for sinners such as us. So help us to praise your faithfulness that we might walk with you, that we might be found righteous and blameless before you only by the power of Christ's blood applied to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He's faithful to his covenant promises as surely as the seasons continue. And so let's rise together as we sing that truth to our hearts and to one another's hearts by singing hymn number 32, Great is Thy Faithfulness.